Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Clock, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, the go-to organization for information about legal operations and connections to the best legal operations professionals in the business. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest leads his firm's revenue management efficiency programs, legal project management, pricing, process improvement, practice innovation, alternative staffing, and new partner integration. He's an industry leader devoted to legal knowledge management and speaks to national audiences on legal pricing, AFAs, and other law firm financial management issues. He's the founder of LMA's P3 Conference and co-founder of the blog Three Geeks in Law. He also co-authored the book Law Firm Pricing Strategies, Roles, and Responsibilities. The Chief Practice Management Officer at Perkins Coie, Toby Brown, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. It's good to be here. Great to have you here. So let's jump right into your one of your areas of specialty and talk about pricing and the drivers behind pricing and delivering on client expectations. Tubby, what are you seeing today in these areas that you thought you would never see 10 years ago or even five years ago? I wish I could say that was a long, long list of things. But unfortunately, the, the market tends to be slow, I'll say, to embrace change. And I've been in the legal pricing game for quite a while, and I remember early on reading predictions about how non-hourly engagements would take a bigger and bigger role in what's going on in terms of how legal legal services are procured, but it, it hasn't happened that fast. One counterexample is the fact that more and more clients are hiring people like me that have not just an operational background, but are more on the business side, thinking about pricing and value and efficiency and all those sorts of things. There's one sort of bright spot I see. In fact, I, I met yet another one this week. It's nice to see clients embracing that side of, of the practice. This concept that law firms are becoming legal enterprises, is that something that you know you believe is a trend where we're seeing these project managers, these legal folks that can work with the legal procurement teams and in in-house legal departments? Is that part of kind of you what you think is the next step here with major law firms is that they're creating this ecosystem around their lawyers? Absolutely. In fact, that's a, I think that's a good way to put it. And you see all the headlines splash about, like right now, the buzz phrase of the year is artificial intelligence and how that's going to sweep through the industry and change everything. What's really happening that's very important is, is along the lines of what you said, and it's not making you know, the news, I would say, or it's not making the news enough, is where law firms, you know, initially they hired people in pricing. And and I'm an example of what's happened. Initially, I was very focused on pricing. And as you, you know, introduced me, my role has expanded and continues to expand around the business of law. And I think a lot of firms are doing that in the background. You don't Again, it's not making headlines, but what's really happening is law firms are pivoting and becoming businesses. Of course, there's challenges, and and what you're not hearing is that we've, you know, law firms have completely upended the partnership model. But there's a lot of pressure starting to come to bear on partnerships around those issues. So you're hearing, 
more where there's you know a bigger spread of partner compensation or different types of partners and things like that. So I I think that's a key aspect of of the evolution that's in full swing right now as law firms becoming businesses. Toby, how do the challenges that major law firms are facing, AM 200 firms and the next tier are facing, how do those differ from what the in-house legal departments are facing, the challenges that they have in front of them? You know, I'm going to take this question in slightly left turn sort of direction. Big trend right now is, and you'll see this in a lot of places, and I actually agree with it, is that one of the biggest competitors of large law firms right now is our clients. They're bringing a lot of work in-house. You know, they're hiring up and bulking. In fact, I met with a general counsel, I'll say, of a large automotive manufacturer about a year ago, and they said they were taking their in-house team from 500 to 800 lawyers. And, and part of that conversation I had was around what's driving that and what are the economics of that. And, and on the surface, it seems an easy decision for in-house, in-house counsel to do. It's like, well, why would I be paying you know, some market billing rate uh, when I can just hire them? I don't have to pay the overhead of the firm and all those sorts of things. So where I'm going with this is in that conversation, I said, well, what you're actually doing is buying all of our challenges. And a very simple example, and this goes to some of my uh, background and experiences around knowledge management. A colleague of mine left his law firm and went to work for a client within the past couple of years. And and he when he started there, and he, what he's doing is, as I mentioned earlier, clients are starting to embrace people like me. That's what he's doing for this client. This client has more lawyers than my my law firm does. And one of his first questions was, was how do we save our documents? And the in-house legal team does not have document management software. And I will say that's extremely common that an in-house legal department does not have a basic tool like document management. And why don't they? Well, they're a cost center inside their inside their company. And they're, you know, when they go to the IT department in their company, the IT department's like, well, we don't really have anything like that. And so my point is law firms now, and this, to take it back to your question, law firms are actually looking at a lot of very interesting technologies, machine learning, data analytics tools, a lot of efficiency gaining tools. If you, if you compare and contrast that to where our clients are, they're just starting to deal with very basic, you know, KM issues or professional development issues that we addressed 20 years ago. So in terms of what law firms are doing, I actually think, again, in the background, there's a lot of really interesting things going on. But on the client side, you know, clients used to work for large firms. They left large firms before they had much hand in the operations and the economics of a firm. And now they're going to have to figure it out. I, and where I'm going with this, I think the future is law firms partnering with in-house legal departments to find those solutions. Those are great points and so true. You build up, you need all those resources. In some industries, you see everyone brought everything in-house and it goes back outhouse. It might go offshore and then it goes back onshore. That trend and it's typically exactly what you're saying. Think it's going to be a better way of doing business and then they realize all the the tail that goes with that. Very good point. You mentioned technology. There's a lot going on in the technology space, artificial intelligence, e-discovery, a lot of different project management tools, a lot of different secured cybersecurity related 
ways of communicating, creating you know very strong backbones for the technology that firms use. What have you seen in that space that you know you're saying, wow, that's innovative. That's something that is really going to change the legal industry. As I was mentioning a moment ago, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on at firms. What's more interesting is how I see firms approaching this. And I have to say, you know, I brag on my current CIO. His his name is Rick Howell. When I came to Perkins, I was so excited. And it, I'll call it somewhat a breath of fresh air. And it's not to say anything bad about any prior CIOs I've worked with. But Rick came to me and said, he goes, look, the business needs to drive technology. You know, I was a man to that. What's important about that is there's all these really interesting technologies. A challenge is, is that the IT people will see it and go, man, we see so much potential for this. And so they'll bring it in the firm and it becomes a solution in search of a problem. And, and so to me, what the future is, is identifying problems and then saying, what is the technology universe to solve those problems? So something very interesting I see happening involves, I'll say, machine learning and expert systems where you you take a client's problem and this is one we're looking at a a compliance problem and say what the client really needs is a way to quickly evaluate any compliance issues around a document or a situation and then once you analyze that that content or information, you move it into an expert system and then have the expert system say, okay, based on this scenario and this information, it's most likely that this is an X issue and you should you know, say no in this situation or it's a Y issue and you need to contact a lawyer to address the following things. And what that does is take technology and and apply it to a problem where the, what the clients are saying is, is, okay, we have a serious problem with compliance around whatever issue it is. And what we need is to be able to respond quickly because our, our customers need an answer now, not, not in six weeks. And so it's, it's taking, I'll say cut relatively cutting edge technology, but pointing it at a problem and solving it. There's a lot of, you know, especially like in the artificial intelligence space where it's, there's this magic thing, um, in fact, my uh, former colleague of mine, he, had, he has a great term for it. He calls it a TAMO server. And what TAMO stands for is then a miracle occurs. And that I, th- I think people are looking at artificial intelligence as, you know, you like Watson, you can go say, okay, you know, my clients, you know, Watson, my client's been sued in the Eastern District of Texas on two software patents. What should our strategy be? That, that stuff's way off. Um, so... You know, I'll drive it back to where I started. What I think is more interesting is not just the technology, but finding ways to apply it to very, very defined client challenges. I think where it's being embraced is where they have to. Okay, I'll give, I'll go with three examples. One, at a prior firm, there was a practice that came under intense uh, fee pressure, and they had to go entirely to fix fees. And the partner, I, I give him a ton of credit. And whenever I talk to him, I still say, you know, I think you're one of the smartest and most forward thinking lawyers I've ever met. He looked at it and said, okay, we've got to do this differently. So he embraced all kinds of technology and legal project management and process improvement. And ultimately what that led to was a, basically he tripled his margins and increased his revenue because he could capture more work. So he was essentially the market forced him to do it. 
Um, there are examples where uh, where a partner in a firm, and you know, I'll name Lisa Damon at Cyfarth, who just says, you know what, it's not a, it's not a, something pressing up against her in any situation with a specific client. She just sees the, that the law firm needs to change. Um, and they've, you know, Cyfarth is well known for embracing a lot of new ways of doing it, but those are pockets. So it's not this broad, you know, and to your point, you know, you can bring in all these tools and they just sit there. So now my third example, you mentioned e-discovery. Um, and I actually have a relatively deep background in e-discovery and been involved with it, frankly, now for like 20 years. And 20 years ago, when predictive coding came out, I thought, oh, this is obvious. Everyone's going to be doing this in five years. And they're still not. And, and that's one where it's a well-defined problem even. And you've got lawyers saying, well, you know, until the court's mandated or the courts haven't made a clear statement on this and we can't trust it and it's a black box and all these other things. I'm like, this is, a, you know, there's no way you can keep up with the volume of data and discovery. You have to start using technology. And you would be surprised, you know, I, you know prior firm, you know, that shall remain unnamed, actually. <laughs> um, I had a friend approach me and say, can you have one of your top-end litigators come to a conference and present on predictive coding? Or, you know, I, th I think we're supposed to call it technology-assisted review now. <laughs> um, and I, I reached around the firm, and I came back, and I said, no, I don't have any lawyers like that that have that expertise. And I was I was embarrassed. But but that demonstrates that even though an obvious technology, an obvious problem exists, lawyers struggle to to embrace that. And now a word from our sponsor. CLOCK, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, is a nonprofit organization of legal operations professionals providing education, the sharing of best practices, networking, and community. Clock is driving positive change across the corporate legal services ecosystem. Go to clock.org, that's C-L-O-C.org, for information on the benefits of membership and the upcoming annual Corporate Legal Operations Institute. In our pre-interview chat, we talked about outcomes management, so I definitely wanted to bring that up. We're hearing it creep into the conversations on Left Foot. I've been doing a general counsel series where I've been interviewing general counsel from different organizations, and we're hearing them say that they are looking for law firms to really present to them different outcomes for evaluation, even at the matter level. So wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about, you know, whether that's been something you've heard at, at your current firm, past firms, and share your opinion on it. I'm happy to do that. And, and I think this is a very, this is important for a number of reasons. And, you know, to lay some foundation by outcomes, what we're talking about is that a firm would come in or multiple firms would come in on a, on a client RFP um, and say, essentially there are three different outcomes. What would most likely be is, you know, quick resolution, general outcome, or, you know, this is a, they see it as a, you know, bet the company or what I would call pound of flesh outcome. So the a firm comes forward and says, here are th essentially three different, you know, fee levels, I'll just call it. In my opinion, what they're trying to do is really get to not what are the legal goals around a situation, but what are the business goals. My experience has been that this is not a broad industry trend, yet it might become one, 
But I also see that it is a different kind of trend where general counsel are trying all these different things to put their arms around their outside counsel spend and make sure they're getting value out of their dollar. And I think what they're really trying to do here, I've already alluded to it, is tie the fee and the effort to an outcome. And it's a business outcome. And this is core to my job, and I consider it the highest value thing I do. I go talk to clients. And what I do in those conversations is there's generally there's sort of a pre-conversation, I'll call it, about the legal issues. But then when I get involved in the conversation, I ask them, what are your business goals? Because when I put together a fee proposal, you know, and I've had this happen time and time again. In fact, I'll give you an example. Prior firm, two extremely, you know, I'll call them similar cases for the same client. It was in patent litigation, and each of them had vastly different pricing approaches. And why? Because one of them they deemed more nuisance and they wanted it to go away fast, and the other one they deemed core to their business and and money was not an object. So that's a great way to demonstrate that the business outcome should be a big driver in what the fees are. So back to the outcomes-based I would suggest if you were a general counsel, tell your tell your law firms our business goals on this one are, you know, you know, I'm making this up, you know, we're looking to sell our company within the next 18 months and we can't have this patent litigation um, on the books because it will impact our sales price. So what we want is for this to go away fast. So we want a proposal based on that. I get where what general counsels are trying to get out of this. But I think there's a more efficient way because, you know, this is a, a big thing I'll say right now for both firms and clients. As clients are fishing around trying to find ways to align value with fees and stuff like that, they're spinning their wheels and they're having law firms spin their wheels. If we are responding to these major RFPs, it is a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources. And I've been in situation at firms where at a point we say, we're not going to bid on any more work from this client because we've spent hundreds of very expensive partner hours. You know, we're always one of three or four firms, but we're never getting the work. And I've called the client and said, you know what, we're not going to bid anymore. They're like, whoa, 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 we love you. And we're, we're just looking for the right case. And I said, well, then come to us with the right case because we can't spend this money and not get work anymore. So I, I think clients should be thoughtful in, in all of these approaches such that they're not they're not spending a lot of money and not getting not getting the solution they were looking for. You know, you hit on so many great points there, Toby, and I have to say, and I totally agree, I've had that experience where I've gone to clients and say, we're not going to bid because the same situation, right? We always come up either number two or not even in a finalist position. We start the conversation with the client. So I think it comes back to, you know, when we talk about in business, like in many other areas of our life, communication is so important. Any thoughts on why those conversations aren't occurring? Or of course, you could push them from the law firm side, ensure those happen. Any people feel like if they go and ask the question, it, it's a negative? This is one of my golden rules. <laughs> and it's, it's called lawyers will do anything to avoid talking about fees. And, and it applies to both in-house counsel and to large or to law firms generally. Why is that? Well, for a number of reasons. One, the personality that's drawn to the practice of law is not one that is sort of naturally inclined to have those sorts of conversations, but also the nature of an attorney-client relationship. And, and I'll tell you, this is 
constantly one of my challenges is that the lawyers feel like if we're talking about fees and rates and all these other things, we're putting ourselves in opposition to our client. Whereas, you know, our natural state is being clearly aligned with our client's best interest. And I always say, you know, our clients don't just have legal problems, they have business problems. We're actually, if if we engage with them on these issues, we're solving not just the legal problem, but the business problem. It has been to my benefit that they don't like to do that. One of my early examples, and this was a couple of firms back, was a client that had a a small problem in the Gulf of Mexico. And and it wasn't the the big one, it was a related one, but it was before that big problem. firm I was at, this was a significant client. And the client said, we don't know what to do about this. And and my firm said, oh, and this is right when I was getting started. They said, well, we have this guy who's taking this on and he can come and talk to you. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And it was, it was one of those where, you know, I was a little nervous, I'll say, because I'd never just been thrown in front of a general counsel like that. And, and I thought, you know, what the heck, I'll give it a shot. And so, so I said, okay, who's coming with me? And they said, oh, you're going alone. And I was, I was shocked. Because I was, I said, this is extremely important clients. I can't imagine letting, you know, someone like me. <laughs> Nowadays, I obviously have a lot of experience, but someone whom they didn't, they didn't have experience to know what kind of conversation I would have with a client. You know, and I'm grateful that they trusted me, but I was shocked. I went alone. But that really kicked the door after I kicked the door open. After I came back, I said, oh, he told me this, this, and this. And they said, how did you get him to tell you that? And I said, well, I asked a few questions and then I shut up. It's basically what allowed me to do all the things I'm doing is that lawyers are just not comfortable talking about those things. First off, it's a great point. Definitely, we're seeing that trend and hearing that. There's been some studies done recently where they basically confirmed that lawyers feel, it was in quotes in some of the comments, it was a study by Dr. Sylvia Silverstein. Oh, yeah. I know Sylvia. And she talked about that they don't want to do the uncomfortable tasks. And one of them was talking about pricing, which obviously the data is showing there's a reason that we're building this ecosystem around these lawyers. I worked with actuaries. It was the same explanation. Not comfortable not what they wanted to do. And they were always surprised. I had similar experience. They would send me out to talk to the client. I think they did it, you know, tongue in cheek saying, oh, the client's never going to tell her anything. And of course, we'd come back with all these great plans on how to structure the agreement in a way that actually had some profit in it for our organization, which, you know, it's a business. It's a business. You can have pricing conversations. It's not personal. That is a, a very, very, very good point. Most lawyers in in-house legal departments used to work for large firms and left before they understood the economics. But, you know, I, I sort of half-heartedly joke about that. Most partners inside law firms don't understand the economics. But so we've got these lawyers in-house and they'll say, well, we're sending you X million dollars worth of business, so you must be happy. And when I have these conversations, and this is a very challenging conversation to have with a client to say, you know, your outside firms may not be profitable, even though they're getting large, you know, portions of your business. And they're like, well, how can that be? If you're, you know, Fortune 100 company and you're making up numbers, you're sending $20 million of business to some large firm, you're likely extracting very deep discounts. One of my sayings is, discounts are a dead end because you can't just keep extracting discounts from law firms because at a point, the cost of their hours are going to hit that discount level and they won't make money on your business. And and I think if I were an in-house you know, lawyer or a general counsel, I would really want to know that my spend is something that is beneficial to my law firm. 
and not not a drag on their bottom line. But I tell you that I think that is a a big challenge on the horizon that clients are going to need to have a better understanding of what makes their law firms profitable because like you you were just alluding to if we do a fixed fee that changes things in a way that now we have a way to manage it to a, a healthy bottom line whereas if it's just you know I want a big big discount you know I, I guess clients assume well they just bill more hours but the reality is more unprofitable hours won't make us profitable um, but I think that's a big issue on the horizon that's interesting because you hit on you know this area of fixed fees and the ability for the client to budget some of their legal spend. I think that's you know that's one area. I have to say I'm I'm starting to kind of hear this idea of you know does it make sense to have law firms really be on retainer even for big companies because if they're on a retainer it again it's a budgeted amount and they can say okay we're going to go to this firm for this particular, for litigation or for IP or a particular area so that the in-house legal department can actually budget that amount and know that it's going to be what they're going to pay that firm. And frankly, from the firm side, they're going to be able to say, we're going to get a certain amount of business from this client. Again, we experienced this in the actuarial firm I worked for. We had clients that year over year would bill a certain amount. And then all of a sudden, we still considered them a client, but they wouldn't bill as much. And so this idea that is there a way that from the law firm side, if we established a retainer with a firm or help them and say, hey, this is the budget that we see spending with your firm next year, and it's going to involve these five things. And, you know, can we sign up for that? And then the law firm can manage it on their side. I guess what I'm trying to ask, Toby, what do you see coming next? You know, what is what is going to be the next environment? Are there options like retainers? Are there, you know, other ways that firms can predict for their clients what their budget, you know, should be for legal services in the coming year, maybe based on the data from the last three or five years? And is there a way that a law firm can really say, yes, we expect to get this much business from this client next year? I would say there's a very big unstated challenge in what you've just said. There is definitely benefit to having a client say, law firm, you're going to get X dollars of business from us this year. There is a benefit to that. One of my favorite alternative fees is a monthly retainer, but it's, and, and what it is, I, you know, I call it a general advice and counsel to say, you can call any time but it's only for these areas of law, you know, one, two, three, four, whatever it is. And every three to six months, we're going to sit down and evaluate your use of this. No, we're not going to get rich on it, but we can't, we can't lose money on it either. And I'll put in like escape clauses, like, well, if a, if a certain issue is going to take more than X hours, then we, we say, you know, let's pause is this actually a separate matter? Do we need to open a separate matter? So there's ways of putting scope, but a lot of times, this is, and again, I say this is a big challenge. Lawyers, you know, and I bet your actuaries had the same problem. They don't have experience putting scope around something. And, you, you know, they, they can scope the legal issues of a matter, but they can't scope the resource issues of a matter. The first time I used this analogy, I thought it would fall flat, but it's actually proven to be very valuable because I have one of my phrases is I call it the magic bucket of prices. So I'll use the case I had earlier. Okay, 
Toby, we're, this client's being sued in the Eastern District of Texas for a couple of software patents. How much should we charge them on a fixed fee for that? And my response, my analogy has been, I said, okay, if you went to a general contractor and said, I want you to build a 2,400 square foot house. And the contractor said, well, the average price of the last five houses I built like that was $400,000, so I'll charge you $400,000, you would probably not do business with that general contractor. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> what would happen is, is you would say, the general contractor would say, well, look, I have a few questions for you. Number one, where are you building this? Is it on the side of a hill? You know, you know, am I going to have all kinds of zoning issues and regulatory issues? Where is it being built? And then, okay, now that we know where it's being built, is it a three-bedroom home? You know, is there going to be a garage? What sort of appliances do you want in your kitchen? You know, do you want, you know, do you want crown molding or whatever? And it's, it's not, it's not super complicated and it's not rocket science, but it's like, it's just basic scoping questions. And when you're done with the scoping questions, the contractor would say, okay, this is going to cost you between $400,000 and $450,000. The variance between those two is, is for the following. And so if any of these three things happen, it's going to be at four fifty. dollars If they don't, it's going to be around four hundred. dollars And so our lawyers have no experience or very, very little experience around that. So to your point... And I actually think it would be better, it will be better when we can get to that point. So when a client says, okay, I've been sued in the Eastern District of Texas, we can sit down and walk through all of the major scoping issues. And when we're done, we maybe it's a fixed fee or maybe it's just a budget and say, this is how much it's going to cost. And when things change, we're going we're gonna to say pause and we're going to talk to you about what's changed and its impact on the price. One thing we haven't talked about yet, outside counsel guidelines where clients are going to great lengths to list all the things they don't want to pay for. And, and one of my pet peeves on that list is librarians. They say, we don't want to pay for librarians, they're, they're your overhead. On one level, I'm like, actually, librarians are the lowest cost to highest value timekeepers we have in the firm. But if you don't want to pay for them, great. I can have associates do the research. <laughs> because client, you should realize if you're telling your outside firms that you won't pay for something, what you're telling them is that it's not important or you know you should be using another resource to do this so and i don't think clients realize that but where i would like to get this to get to a point is is if i have a budget or if i have a fixed fee it's really the client shouldn't care what resources i'm using as long as i'm on budget and i'm getting the outcomes they want it you know the the fact that clients spend hours reading our bills i just don't think is the best use of their time this whole idea of scoping and the lawyers not feeling comfortable with it and even getting you know that idea that they don't have experience with it with the data we can say a similar complexity issues similar industry we can come up with a range you know based on the scoping questions we're going to ask and we can come up with a range that this matter might might cost but then we have to have some communication we go back to the communication we have to talk about it if something occurs where it's going to change what was our estimate. Go back to communication, and I have to say risk. I mean, is it because the, the lawyers are just not comfortable that there's some there might be some risk in, in putting that out there? Absolutely. Lawyers like to always be on highly defensible ground. I can either go through like a 15-minute budgeting conversation with a lawyer and come up with what I would say is a 
very reliable estimate on the fees, but subject to the scoping questions I'll ask them, or I can take six hours and work with them to come up with a budget. In either scenario, when we're done, I say, okay, there is risk. You need to know this is a guess, and the chances are it's going to be wrong. And that makes lawyers very nervous or like, well, we've, you know, even if I've done the six hours, they said, well, we've done all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but what's going to happen is, is we've budgeted to do a deposition on April 5th and it's going to get rescheduled. (laughs) And, and that's going to change not a whole bunch, but that's going to start changing some of the factors here because time is money. If it gets rescheduled once or twice, all of a sudden the cost of that deposition is going to be a lot more than we thought it was going to be because we've gone through prep two or three times. Said so, so it's a guess. And, and they, that makes them very uneasy. Um, I've had lawyers at prior firms say, well, Toby, you said this fee was going to, going to be right and it's wrong. So, you know, you're wrong. What did you do wrong? And I'm like, I can't, I'm like, A, I didn't manage the resources, and B, the scope changed, and you didn't do anything about it. Um, so there, there's absolutely risk. And again, that's another sort of uncomfortable space for lawyers. It's amazing the trends we're hearing. What we're hearing from general counsel is we need our lawyers to respond on the timelines in which we have to respond to the business. And that often will require that they give us guidance in a relatively quick turnaround. And we understand there might be some risk because we need the guidance now and we we can't wait until they can do a thorough review and eliminate all risk. So we have to be able to, to work in a timely manner and they understand there might be some risk. What we're hearing from our corporate and M&A counsel that we interview, they understand that. And that they understand that the client needs a response and that they had to get comfortable with that risk. The challenge is, is we're a very reputation-driven industry. A lawyer is so hesitant to say, you know, unless they've done the thorough research, they're very hesitant to say, this is my opinion on it. Because they know they're going to be held to it. And if they're wrong, you know, even if the client said, it's, you know, I know you're not doing the thorough research and there may be a smoking gun somewhere, but I need an answer now. That's really, really hard for a lawyer. In fact, this, this brings back an old memory where they, the client said, well, I don't want to fix fees because you know, you know, you might not bring your best game to any engagement. And I, I laughed at one client and they said, what? And I said, we don't know how to do it any other way. Two last points. Is there a go-to piece of advice that you have for lawyers that are starting their business development uh, responsibilities, starting to work with clients specific to negotiations and pricing? Any kind of advice that you would give to that new class of partners? One is, you know, don't be afraid. Um, Actually, your clients are yearning to have these conversations. They need to have this conversation. What you're doing is become a becoming a counselor to the client in a new way, and they will love it. Look ahead. If you want to be the senior partner of the most successful law firm of the future, that's going to be a key skill to have. So so don't be afraid to do that. Even though you're a partner now, one of the first questions they're going to ask you every year in your review is, how many hours did you bill? My advice is to not worry about that question. You should be far more concerned about are your clients happy and are you building strong relationships with your client and are you growing your book of business? So because if you do those things, you will be a successful partner. If you worry about how many hours you're billing, you're probably not. 
it's the advice that's going to give them control over their career. It's those quote unquote service partners that are always, you know, surprised that they don't have more control. Toby, I've enjoyed this interview so much and I know you have a lot of energy about what you do. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I get to go toe to toe with the smartest people in the world every day. What I like about my job is that, I mean, even though, you know, we talk about all these challenges, the lawyers really want to figure this out. I get to engage with them around like the most interesting issues. And, you know, I do presentations internal to the firm all the time. And invariably, because these are lawyers and some of them, I'll say world-class trial lawyers, they'll raise their hand and they'll come at me on an issue. But recently, um, I was proposing a, a certain change here at this at Perkins Coie and a very prominent, very, you know, rainmaker lawyer in leadership just opened up on me. My team was, was involved in the meeting and a couple of them sent me notes. Are you okay? Are you okay? And I had the biggest smile on my face because I was like, here we go. This is going to be fun. And, and it's that exchange of ideas. And, and ultimately what happened in that situation is that partner and I sat down and talked and I said, look, I actually think we're agreeing on where this needs to go. We're, we're not agreeing on the steps to get there. And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, let's figure out what steps that we can agree on that will get us there. And and literally in 15 minutes, we'd come up with a brand new idea. And I, so I just love that engagement. I love, love the fact that, you know, I have to think on my feet and that I'm challenged all the time. I just, you know, cause a lot of times people will say, you know, how can you work for all these, you know, egos and, and stuff like that? I'm like, nah, it's, it's, it's more how you look at it and your, and your perspective and your perception. I love it. You know, like you say, I have all this energy. That's how I get that energy. Now, that's fantastic. And I am sure you earned that partner's respect. Informative interview, enjoyable interview. Toby, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.